Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you. Welcome to the adventure. We'll see if we can dodge the raindrops this morning a little bit together this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful that you would join us this morning. Looking forward to studying God's word with you. If, if there's anything that we can do to help you get connected here over city or to serve you and your family, we'd love if you'd let us know. We'd love to be able to do that. Uh, last week, we started a new series uh, called The Way of the Exile, and normally here at River City, we just kind of pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it verse by verse, and, but sometimes it's, it's, it's helpful and valuable for us to take a look at uh, the way that various themes are woven throughout the course of Scripture overall, and studying these overarching themes in Scripture is helpful because it can help us to see a bigger picture about who God is, about what he's like, and, and therefore about who we are and who we're called to be as his people. And, and so that's what we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks here at Ur City. And the theme that we're going to be examining together, this theme that kind of spans the course of scripture, is, is the identity of God's people as exiles. Last week we took a look at Jeremiah 29 as well as 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. And, and we saw how in both the Old and the New Testaments, the Bible not only describes God's people as exiles, but but what it does is it highlights the fact that seeing ourselves as exiles is, is inextricably linked with understanding our calling and our purpose as God's people in the world. And so as we studied those passages, we saw how having the perspective of an exile, it fundamentally shapes the way that we think about, the way that we relate to, and the way that we engage with the world around us in, in two big overarching ways. And the first is, is simply this, is that having the perspective of an exile, it causes us to see this world as our temporary home. You see, for God's people, there is an ever-present reality that we are not home yet, that we are citizens of another kingdom. And when you become a Christian, you not only get adopted into God's family, you become a citizen of his kingdom. And so you, you become a dual citizen. And the reality is, is that this world and this place, it's not our forever home. It is the place where we live. It is the place where we dwell. But it's not the end for us. But what we saw is the second thing is that while this world might not be our true home, our identity as God's people, as his exiles, his citizens living in, uh, citizens of his kingdom living abroad, that doesn't mean that we disengage from this world. Instead, it means quite the opposite. It, instead, that idea, that perspective, it causes us, it causes us to see ourselves as exile missionaries and to see this world as our urgent mission field. We're not called to live like immigrants, just uh, trying to assimilate into the culture, nor are we called to live like tourists who are just passing through. Instead, we're called to live as God's foreign ambassadors who care deeply about the people and the places where we live and where we're sent because the king that we represent cares about the people and the places where we live far more than we ever could. God sent the Israelites into a physical exile in Babylon, and God called the New Testament church we saw in 1 Peter to live as spiritual exiles in their community, seeking the good and the prosperity of the people and the places where they lived. 1 Peter tells us, so that they might glorify God when he returns. The whole point of living as exile missionaries is that so people might come to know God they might see and encounter him through his people, living as his sent people, ambassadors for his kingdom in the world. And so living in the way of the exile begins by having the perspective of an exile, seeing this world as our temporary home as well as our urgent mission field. The problem is, is that we, we don't always think and live that way, do we? 
We don't always think and live that way. We get caught up in living for the pleasures or the joys of this world or just simply trying to avoid the pain of it. We, we get caught up being consumed with what is happening here and causing this, the what's happening here to be our chief concern. And the question is, what, what keeps us from living in the way of the exile? What, what keeps us from living as God's commission sent people in the world with, with that kind of exile perspective? Well, believe it or not, the, the answer has everything to do with worship. The answer has everything to do with worship. And as we study the account of, the, of three young exile missionaries in Babylon this morning, in, in Daniel chapter 3, what we're going to see is that, that who or what we worship, it determines how we live. Who or what we worship determines how we live. And the reality is that the, the object of our worship will either empower or impede our ability to live as God's people in the world. The object of our worship, it will either empower or it will impede our ability to live as God's people in the world. And so with that in mind, let's pray and we'll dive into our passage this morning. Jesus, uh, thank you for our time together this morning. Most of all, thanks for your word that you would keep it for us so that we might know you through it. God, we pray that you would uh, just hold off the rain so that we can spend some time in your word, some time worshiping you. And God, we pray that you would help us to see you rightly, to see your word rightly, to understand it rightly. But more than that, God, we ask that by your spirit, you would enable us to respond rightly to it. We can't do that without you. And so, God, we humbly ask that you would help us not only to have the perspective of exile missionaries this morning, but that you would help us to see what is keeping us from living that way. God, for our good, for your glory, we ask all that in your name. Amen. Well, the passage we're about to read is in Daniel chapter 3, and, and the context of the whole book of Daniel uh, is exile. In, in uh, 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. A year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned, and thousands of Israelites were, were taken all over various parts of Babylon. They were taken to live in those places. They were relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And, and the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he specifically sought out the best and the brightest Israelites to be servants in his courts, that basically to be officials in his kingdom and to indoctrinate the best and the brightest with, with the ways of Babylon. Guys like Daniel and, he, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you grew up watching VeggieTales, that'd be Rakshak and Benny, right? Um, so uh, from the beginning, it was clear that, that, that these men, that they chose to live with the perspective of exile missionaries, they had that mindset. You see, their first allegiance was to God and his kingdom, and they were unswerving in that reality, but they also took Jeremiah's words very seriously, and, and they sought to be a blessing and to seek the blessing of the, the place and the people where they lived and where God had sent them into exile to. And the perspective of an exile, it not only shaped their thoughts, it shaped their very lives. And so that's what we're going to read about here. Daniel chapter 3. Begins in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, he had made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. If you you're, need to refresh on your cubits, just, it's just big, real big is, is, the, is the dimensions there, okay? And uh, sat up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the advisors and the treasurers and the judges and the magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. And so they assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. And the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the harp, the, 
the lyre, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing fire, blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard all the music, all the nations and all the people in every language, they fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And at this time, some astrologers came forward and they denounced the Jews. And they said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who, who have come and set you, who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, when you hear the music of, uh, sorry, verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? And now when you hear the sound of the music, If you are ready to fall down and worship the images I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing fire. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Verse 16, they respond, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Before thrown into the blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, uh, in order to kind of abbreviate our time, I'm going to sum up the rest of the passage there. But, but the, these men, they refuse to bow down. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, he throws them into the fire in a rage. He, he heats it to incredible levels. But what happens is that God himself meets them in the fire. And he does save them. He does rescue them. He does protect them. And, and they come out of the fire. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, as well as these men, they give praise to God. Because they recognize that God is the only one who could really have saved them. And there is a lot going on in this passage. There's a lot more than we have time to get into. We could probably do a couple of sermons just on this passage alone. But if you had to sum up what was happening here, if you had to sum up the central theme of this passage, it would be worship. You see, the word worship is used 11 times in Daniel chapter 3. The the setting is a worship gathering. The conflict is over who or what is being worshipped. The the climax of the passage when 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 they refuse to bow down is an act of worship. And, And the conclusion of the passage results in worship. Worship is central to everything that's happening here. But worship isn't just central to this passage. It's central to the Bible because the reality is is that the Bible tells us that every human is a worshiper. It's the very thing we were made by God to do. And it is, in fact, the one thing that every human cannot stop doing. The question is not if we will worship, it's what we will worship. No matter if you see yourself as religious or not, every human is a worshiper. And so it's important that we define what that means, what it means to worship. A lot of times people define worship or they connect it with music or with singing. And uh, there's a lot of music and a lot of singing and some zithers and lyres and all kinds of stuff in our passage this morning. But it's not the music, it's not the singing that that these three men, that, that they have a problem with. It's the bowing down. 
You see, worship isn't ultimately about songs or about music. It's about allegiance. It's about devotion. See, worship isn't about giving someone or something. It's about giving someone or something your supreme devotion, your ultimate allegiance, your, your primary affection. It's about looking at someone or at something and, and, and saying in your heart of hearts, if I have that, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning and worth. Then, then I'll feel significant and secure. Then I'll really be satisfied. Or it's about looking at whatever that is in your heart of hearts and saying, if I lost that or if I lost that thing, I would be crushed. Or if that was kept from me, I'd be furious. You see, whoever or whatever that is, that's, the, that's what you worship. It is your functional God. Like I said before, the question is not if we will worship, it's what will we worship. And it will either be the one true God or it will be something else. And the Bible says that whenever we worship something other than God, that's what it means to worship an idol. An idol is what, something that we worship that is not God. Something that holds the overwhelming, controlling influence in our lives. People worship all kinds of idols. It can be other people, it can be family, it can be parents, it can be, it can be kids or spouses or boyfriends or girlfriends. People worship things like money or jobs or careers or, or hobbies. It can, it can be social status or political influence or personal autonomy. The, the list is endless. But if you've been around River City for very long, you'll, you'll know that the way that we talk about idolatry is that under all of those things, is really an ultimate desire for what we, what we like to call source idols. It's some combination of a desire for power, comfort, approval, or, uh, or control. With the idol of, of power, the, the false god that, we, that we're tempted to worship is a desire for authority and a desire for influence over other people and other situations. With, with, with control, it's a desire to have autonomy and mastery over certain areas of our own life and over our own future. With, with the idol of comfort, the controlling desire in our hearts is for a freedom and for pleasure in addition to escape the stress and the responsibilities that we, that we feel and that we have around us. And with the idol of approval, it's a, it's a paramount desire to be, to be loved and to be accepted, to be respected by a certain people or, or certain person or people group. And none of those things in and of themselves are, are, are wrong things. It's not, it's not wrong to desire to have influence. It's not wrong to consider the way that other people think about you, but they become idols when they become the overwhelming desires in our hearts and lives. When they become the things that control our attitudes and our actions and our motives you see, the reason why understanding worship is so important is because by definition, whatever you worship, the thing you desire most, the, the thing that you are supremely devoted to, whatever that is, it will always hold the overwhelming controlling influence in your life. It will determine, it will direct what you do. And that's not just evident and plain in our own lives. We see that clearly in the passage this morning. You see, for King Nebuchadnezzar, the thing that he worshipped was power. And everything he does in the passage is controlled by a desire to either get power or to keep it. You see, in the previous chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has, this, he has a bad dream. And, and he asks everyone, all, all of his wise men, he asks everybody to tell him what the dream is and what it means. And, and nobody can do it except Daniel because it was a dream from God. And whatever Daniel tells him, it, it's not good news. 
His dream is basically, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream is basically God confronting him with the declaration that he is not God and that his kingdom will not last and that in the face of all of the greatness of Babylon, the one true God is actually setting up an enduring kingdom that will outlast every kingdom of the world. And while King Nebuchadnezzar is incredibly impressed with Daniel and ultimately with God, who who Daniel gives credit for interpreting the dream, he, he doesn't want to submit to God. He doesn't want to worship God. And what we see happening in the passage is him doubling down on a desire and a worship of power. Nebuchadnezzar, he wants everyone to do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, because he wants it to happen. He wants to be in charge. He wants to have ultimate authority. He wants to be God. And he rejects the proclamation that God has made about him that that his kingdom and his name is inferior to God's. And he builds this huge statue as a monument to his own power and his own greatness. And he wants everyone to bow down and to worship this statue and in so doing to to worship him. And when he feels like these three men are, they are confronting him, when when he feels like his influence and his authority are being challenged by them, he gets furious. He, he goes into such a rage that he orders the fire of this furnace heated to such ludicrous levels that people who even get near it are killed. You see, you see what he worshipped was power. And it consumed and controlled his life and the actions that he took. You see, but worship, it didn't just control his actions. Worship controlled the actions of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego as well. See, they get routed out by some astrologers. It's always the astrologers. You just, you gotta watch out for them. They're just sketchy, right? Verse 12, they tell King Nebuchadnezzar, there's, there's some Jews who you set over some parts of your kingdom. They're important. You've given them a power, but they don't worship you and they're not bowing down to you and they don't listen to you and they don't do what you've told them to do. Verse 16 and 18, King Nebuchadnezzar has, has, has threatened these men that if they don't bow down and worship, he's going to throw them into the fire. They respond to him. They say, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, O king. For if we are thrown into this blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. You see, their response, it was a declaration of their ultimate allegiance. Unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, they don't worship power and influence. They're, they're, they are clearly willing to not, lose, not only lose their jobs, but to lose their status and their position as, as officials and authorities in the, in the kingdom of Babylon. More than that, it's clear that they don't worship comfort because it's very clear that they're not only willing to go into the fire, they're willing to lay down their very lives. And they don't worship approval either. They're, they're not chiefly concerned about what their peers think, the other officials and leaders in the country. They're not even concerned about what the king of the greatest nation on the earth at that time even thought about them. No, they're ultimately concerned about what God thinks and the fact that they know that God can save them, but that they're not sure if he will and that it still doesn't change their actions. It still doesn't change the choice that they have made to refuse to worship false gods. It reveals that they don't worship control, that they don't need to know all the variables and have all the outcomes in hand before they're willing to choose to obey. You see, instead, it's clear that these men, that they worship God and their actions, they reveal an ultimate allegiance, a supreme devotion. 
a highest loyalty to the one true God. You see, the object of their worship, it determined the direction of their lives. They weren't looking to someone or something to fulfill them or to rescue them other than God himself. And at first, the king, he's furious about this, but at the end, he's amazed by it. And it can be easy to think when we read this passage, think, wow, this is just just incredible, right? Like, I can't believe it. The, The faith of these men is amazing, and it is incredible faith. But what's more important than that, what's so important you see is not the amount of their faith, but is the object of their faith. See, what they firmly believe is that the God that they worship is absolutely able to save them. And that no matter what he decides to do, they are unwilling to worship anyone or anything else. They worship God. They believe that he alone could satisfy and save. You see, what happens with idols is that they function as pseudo-saviors in our lives. We're willing to do anything or to, or to give up anything to keep them or to get them because they, we think that they can provide for us something we feel like we must have or we think that they can rescue us from something we feel like we cannot bear, but they never can. The passage ends this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, he admits this. He says, no other God can save like that. No other God can save. The question I want to pose to you this morning as we seek to think and live as in the way of the exile in our own day, in our own world, is what are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? Because the object of your worship, it determines your life. It shapes your actions invariably. Are you worshiping power? You might not be building 90-foot statues for your neighbors to bow down to. But, but is anger the reaction that you exhibit when your authority or your influence is challenged? Are you convinced that if your ideas or, or the ideas of your political party, if they would just win out, then everything would finally be as it should be? Or, or that if your ideas or your political party's ideas, if they don't get, if they don't win out, then everything will be ruined? Or maybe you worship comfort is the thing that you find yourself longing for most just an escape from the pressures or the stress of your life and your responsibilities? Do you, do you find yourself constantly thinking about and pursuing the things of this world, just looking for distractions? Do you think that if you just had a little bit more money or a little bit bigger house or, or a little bit better job or a little bit nicer car, then you'd finally be satisfied? You'd finally feel like you could be happy. You'd feel like you'd, you'd finally just have what you felt like you needed. Are you unwilling to talk about your faith with others because you just don't want to be uncomfortable? Or maybe, maybe you're tempted to worship control. You need to know the details and the situation and the circumstances of, of everything around you before you're willing to take a next step. You must have all of the variables in your hands Are you consumed by tracking every report and statistic about the pandemic we find yourself in? Because because knowing the information and knowing the variables, that's the way that you are going to be able to keep you and your family safe. Do you refuse to take spiritual risks with your friends or your neighbors because you're just not sure how they're going to respond? And that's too much. Or maybe you worship approval. Maybe you're consumed by thinking about what other people think about you. 
your family, your friends, your boss, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, someone, you are consumed by always wondering what it is that they think about you, what, if they approve of you and your choices or not. Do you find yourself doing things just because you think it's what others want you to do or because you think it will make them look favorably upon you? Maybe you are unwilling to take spiritual risks with those around you because you're just too concerned about the, what they might think about you if you say you actually follow Jesus. You see, the object of our worship, it always determines the actions of our lives invariably what we worship shapes our decisions and our choices and our actions. And when we worship these things, when we worship power, comfort, or control, or approval, it controls our lives in ways that make it impossible for us to live in the way of the exile, to live as God's kingdom people, his kingdom ambassadors sent into the world. You see, living in the way of exile begins by rejecting the idols that we're tempted to be ruled and controlled by and instead turning in faith to worship the one true God, believing that he alone can actually satisfy, that he alone can actually give life. There is pressure all around us to give in to the worship of power and comfort and approval and control. The, these three men, they faced immense pressure to give in to the worship of those things, but they refused. Not because their faith was just some incredible otherworldly thing. Because their eyes were set on the one thing that's worthy of worship in the first place. See, and if you and I, if we're going to be a people like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who in the midst of immense pressure to worship all kinds of other things, are steadfastly, relentlessly committed to worshiping and giving our lives to the one true God, the only way that that's going to happen is when we see that that God has lived as an exile for us. When we see that, that the only way that we're going to give our lives back and worship to the one who, who calls us to do that is by seeing that the one who calls us to worship him is the one who chose to give his life for ours, who, who became an exile for us, and, and who, like these men, who, who find themselves in the midst of the blazing fire, yet with another one in the fire with them. The passage ends in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They find themselves in the midst of the fire, yet they are not consumed. And there's a fourth man who stands in the fire with them. It's God himself who has come. You see, and it's only when we see that it's Jesus who not only went into the fire with us, but who does it for us on our behalf that we will be filled with a love and a worship for him that actually empowers a life lived for him. You see, when, it's only when, when you see that he has done that for you that you will be, that you'll long to give yourself back to him. That's what the 19th century preacher Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection. He says, he writes it this way, he says, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection, the, the only way to root out idolatry in your life is by the expulsive power of a new affection. It's by changing the object of your worship. If that new affection be the love of God, he says, it shall draw the heart of the sinner towards him. You see, it's the love of God made known to us in the gospel that enables us to worship him. And it's the love of God made known to us in the gospel. That's what we're remembering every week when we take communion together. 
See, communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. It doesn't save you. Instead, it is a reminder for us. It's a chance for us to remember the God who has come to save. The one who went into the fire for us. The one who is able to rescue us. The one who is the only one who is worthy of worship. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if he is the one in which you long to worship, then whatever you are ready, enjoy and in thankfulness, take communion. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not this morning, if you're here and you're still figuring out who Jesus is to you and what it means to follow him, I want you to know you are welcome here, but I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion and instead talk with God. Ask him to reveal to you the things that you are worshiping other than him, the things that keep you from worshiping him and ask him to help you worship him first. As we take communion, as we sing, I'd encourage you, all of us, talk with God. Ask him to give you eyes to see the things that you are tempted to worship other than him. Ask him to help you to see the, the whether it is that you're worshiping power or comfort or control or approval or, or some combination of some or all of them. Ask him to give you eyes to see the things that you are worshiping that are not him. But more than that, ask you to help, ask, you to, ask him to help you to see the insufficiency of those things. They're counterfeit gods. They can never save. They can never satisfy. They can't rescue. They can't redeem. They can't fulfill. They will never be what you want them to be. Oh, but he is. And he proved that by coming to die on your behalf so that in him you might have the life that you are looking for and the life that he has made you to have in him. When we worship him, when he holds the controlling influence in your life, it's only then you'll be able to live for him in this world, to live in the way of the exile. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are thankful this morning for your word and for our time together. We're grateful that you might, uh, that you might gather us, that you've held off the reins so that we could enjoy our time in your word. And so God, we humbly ask this morning, God, would you graciously help us to see what it is that we worship that's not you? Help us to see the insufficiency, the inadequacy of it. Help us to see that it can never save, it can never fulfill. Oh, but you can. God, as your people, give us eyes to see that. But more than that, King Jesus, cause us to be consumed by you. Cause us to be controlled by you. Not out of duty or obligation, but out of love for all that you've done for us. God, we are grateful that you are the one God who can save. No other God can save like you can. And so help us to be a people whose hope is set on you and therefore who are able to live in the way of the exile, seeing this world as our temporary home as, and as our urgent mission field. Live and help us to live lives of worship unto you so that others might come to worship you as well. We pray all this in your good name, God. Amen.